0: This podcast was recorded during the EM Cases course in Toronto in February 2016 in front of a live audience. Thanks so much to everyone who made the course a great learning experience for all, and apologies in advance for the suboptimal sound. We're about to do what's never been done before in emergency medicine. This is not a lecture. This is not 150 PowerPoint slides. This isn't even a regular podcast. This is the first ever live EM Cases podcast where we'll get a sneak peek a little bit at the behind the scenes of how we record a podcast, except this time it's going to be with audience participation. We'll be putting some question, questions out there to you, the audience, along the way. So what do you say, Dr. Carr? Should we cue the music? Hit it. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, coming to you live from the EM Cases course at North York General. On this special live podcast, we have Dr. David Carr of Carr's Cases fame, international speaker extraordinaire, passionate educator, and all-around great guy, From the University Health Network in Toronto to discuss one of his favorite topics in EM, anaphylaxis. So, welcome Dr. Carr back to EM Cases and welcome everyone here at the course to the live podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Anaphylaxis is the quintessential medical emergency. We own this one. While the vast majority of anaphylaxis is relatively benign, about 1% of these folks die, and usually they die quickly. Observational data show that people who die from anaphylaxis do so within about 5 to 30 minutes. And in up to 40%, there's no identifiable trigger. The sad thing is that many of these deaths are because of too simple reasons. One, that anaphylaxis was misdiagnosed in the first place, and two, that the treatment was inappropriate. So there's lots of room for improvement when it comes to anaphylaxis management. So with the help of Dr. Carr, we'll discuss how to pick up atypical presentations of anaphylaxis, how to manage the oh-so-challenging epinephrine-resistant anaphylaxis, whether or not we should abandon steroids, A rare must know diagnosis related to anaphylaxis and a lot more. So, here we go. Let's go! So, case number one is a 37 year old, otherwise healthy woman. Who comes into your ed complaining of an itchy rash that started soon after eating some seafood at a restaurant she complains of a scratchy feeling in her throat but denies any difficulty breathing speaking or swallowing she denies lip or tongue swelling shortness of breath abdominal pain vomiting or fever on exam her vitals are normal she appears uncomfortable scratching at her neck with an obvious raised patchy red urticarial rash all over her neck and torso. Her voice is normal, lips and tongue do not appear swollen, there's no strider, and her chest is clear. Now, we see patients like this all the time in the ED. So, Dr. Carr, the first question is, is this anaphylaxis, or is this sort of a a nothing allergic reaction that we don't really need to do anything about?
1: Yeah, Anton, I think whenever you see these constellation of symptoms... That's such an important thing to do, is define anaphylaxis, because that really guides your management. And, you know, you can look at things in terms of a trajectory of symptoms, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But I think it is so critical to actually define anaphylaxis. And anaphylaxis has been around really since antiquities. It's been forever reported. The issue is a consensus definition is relatively new and I think the we've all kind of been taught the plus one approach which means you have a rash plus one other symptom and that's kind of anaphylaxis. The true anaphylaxis definition that's most accepted really is the design is to encompass about at least 95% of all cases and it looks at three criteria. The first being you have a rash and then you have some other symptoms be it respiratory or cardiovascular. The second criteria looks at any two symptoms. So it eliminates the need to have rash as your main symptom and says any two systems. So you have either dermatological, gastrointestinal, which is an often underappreciated one, in my opinion, um, respiratory, airway symptoms, and whatnot. And then lastly, which is the master champion, uh, master clinician one, is isolated hypotension alone. So in the patient you've described clearly has a rash. You just have to ask yourself, is that itchy throat? an airway issue. And clearly we've all seen sick anaphylaxis and kind of sucky anaphylaxis. And you have to kind of say, what is this throat symptoms and what do they really represent? The person who is very suggestible and they've had a rash and then 14 days later after their exposure, they say, well, you know, now that you mentioned, maybe it's a little bit of a tingle in my throat is different than the striderous um, suffering person. I think if this person, if you have any doubt that there's some throat stuff, you can watch it for a very short while. You want to see which way things go. But I think if you have a rash and you have someone who's starting to complain of throat symptoms, this is anaphylaxis and you have to treat it.
0: Okay, so that's the definition of anaphylaxis. We kind of all sort of know it when we see it, but I think it's very valuable to know what the actual definition is. So could you just drive home for us, Dr. Carr, why we really need to know this definition?
1: You need to know it because... Anaphylaxis has one fantastic treatment. And if you don't have anaphylaxis, you don't need that fantastic treatment. And that fantastic treatment is epinephrine. And it is so critical that you make that diagnosis of anaphylaxis because your management is entirely guided by the diagnosis.
0: Okay, so we've got this patient with a scratchy throat and a rash, and we know what the definition is. So
1: the next question is, does this patient need epinephrine? Yeah, I mean, as I kind of alluded to earlier, I think that if people... You know, react quickly to an antigen or to an exposed allergen, then you have to be really worried about that. I think if this person just ate something and noticed it right away, you're going to perceive a trajectory that's going to be very concerning. I think that in this case, I would probably pull the trigger and define her as an anaphylactic.
0: All right. So we have an idea now about the importance of and indications for epinephrine in allergic reactions. Let's talk a little bit about how best to give it. So how should we be administering EPI in the ED? Let's start with the route and location. What route and location should we be giving EPI? Yeah.
1: So if you want, think like a real estate agent, it's really location, location, location. And uh, one of the big things that I always find is that if you're nurses, do we have any nurses in the audience? And I don't want to pick on nurses because I know there were some here this morning, but the end of the day is I don't tend to give the EPI shot myself. I usually rely on someone else, and that tends to be where I work, a nurse. And often what's easiest to do is just, they're already in a hospital gown, you kind of pull down their gown and you give them a shot of epi in the shoulder. What we know about deltoid epinephrine concentrations versus anterior lateral thigh is that if you're given into the thigh, you receive five times higher concentration. Take the pants off and give them the shot of epi. Just like the patients who give themselves their own EpiPen do, it's an anterior lateral thigh drug. And it's an anterolateral thigh drug that is given intramuscularly. It is not sub-Q. And the reason why we give it intramuscularly is because we receive much higher, quicker concentrations. So it's about getting that rapid rise. So you want to give it IM and you want to give it to the anterolateral thigh. And counsel your nurses, collaborate with them. Enough of this humoral epi. It has no place.
0: All right. So, anterolateral thigh. I mean, we'll, we'll come back to this when we talk about discharge instructions, but I think this point is so important that we should mention it here. You know, all patients that you see with anaphylaxis in the ED require a prescription for epinephrine auto-injector. So, the question is, how do you counsel the patients to use their auto-injector?
1: Yeah, you really got to counsel them like you have to counsel principals at school. Because, I mean, how many principals at school come in with uh, thumb auto-injecture punctures? I think what you have to realize and keep it simple is blue to the sky, orange to the thigh. Okay? When you look at the epinephrine auto injector, you will see a blue cap and an orange cap. Hold the blue to the sky and punch the orange to the anterior lateral thigh.
0: All right. So we talked about the location. What about the dose? What's the dose of epinephrine? What's the correct dose? Again, you know, one of the most common causes of death in anaphylaxis is giving the wrong dose. Uh, You know, I'm especially careful about the dose when it comes to kids because I find it hard to remember sometimes. What's an easy way to remember the dose for epinephrine? What's the correct dose?
1: Yeah, firstly... Easy, non easy. The point is, this is not a, a dose that you look on your handheld for. This is a dose that you need to memorize in the resuscitation room. The pediatric dose is 0.01 milligrams per kilo. What you see with the adult dose is people will say 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams of one in a thousand IM. The reality is, Anton, you and I don't weigh the same. And I've seen a lot of like sick anaphylaxis getting 0.3 in people my size. I think that you have to be cognizant that is, if it's 0.01 per kilo, I'm not 30 kilos. I'm not going to give myself 0.3 milligrams I am. Right. So someone like me,
0: I'm 150, 155 pounds. I might get 0.3. Someone like Dave, you're 157 pounds? 100, uh, after that great lunch, about 160. Okay. <laughs> Dave's a little bit more than that. He's a strong guy. Uh, he might get 0.5 milligrams. Yeah, I would
1: probably give both of us 0.5 to be honest. I mean, I I don't have a problem giving 0.5 in in young, robust men like us. Okay. (laughs) I have been taking boxing class while I'm living in Boston, so
0: maybe. Okay. So uh, you've given it once. What about repeated doses? How how often can you repeat, I am epinephrine?
1: Yeah, you can repeat it probably every five minutes, bearing in mind that if you find yourself giving more than two doses, you need to start thinking about the next steps.
0: All right, we're going to get to that. So the first take-home points from this case can be summarized in three words: timing, location, and dose. First, give epinephrine ASAP to anyone who fulfills the criteria for anaphylaxis, that is two system involvement or hypotension. Second is the location. Give epinephrine in the anterolateral thigh not the deltoid muscle because it reaches maximum concentration way faster at the anterolateral thigh. And third, give the right dose, 0.01 milligrams per kilogram to a maximum of half a milligram IM, repeated after five minutes if there's no clinical improvement. So again, the number one cause of death is not giving epinephrine at the right time, at the right place, in the right dose.
2: What do you do? i right to you, too. you, Gotta do to Like you have them. Like you have them. Do you.
1: Does anyone know who's singing that, by the way? Perfect. Okay. Great. I take that uh, with much flattery that you put a Dylan uh, reference. Yeah. Dave and I are both hardcore Dylan fans.
0: All right. Let's move on to the other medications that we use for anaphylaxis. That's H1 blockers, H2 blockers, steroids, et cetera. Now there's a mountain of dogma in emergency medicine. And one of the classic ones is quote, everyone with allergic reaction or anaphylaxis requires an H1 blocker like diphenhydramine in Canada, Benadryl. Dr. Carr, lice this dogma for us. What's the evidence for the effectiveness of H1 blockers in
1: preventing morbidity or mortality in anaphylaxis? Well, you're not going to have more mortality benefit for certain. And I think this is something that is standard practice, but not necessarily standard of care. I mean, there's no evidence to support or refute its use, but it is standard practice. And I would say most of us are giving an H1 blocker immediately with people with anaphylaxis. Now, I shouldn't say immediately, I would say it's an adjunct therapy. And the big mistake that people do is they reach for these adjunct medications. What we know is these medications take a while to work, and they make people not feel itchy. That is not the goal. The goal is to save lives. You save lives with epinephrine. Everything you else you do is just for gravy to make the painting look pretty. But I think that y- there is not wonderful evidence for the use of Benadryl or an H1 blocker. But there's no doubt we use them.
0: Right. Yeah, I, I like to use the analogy of Lasix in CHF and acute decompensated heart failure we use the first thing we pull out for someone who comes into the emergency department with acute decompensated heart failure is lasix and there's really no good evidence that it really does anything except maybe make their legs a little bit less swollen really the first line should be nitroglycerin and i think that's a a good way of thinking about it is that for anaphylaxis it's all about the epinephrine you know the diphenhydramine sure it'll take their itch away but you're you're not really saving lives that way All right, so that's diphenhydramine. What about H2 blockers like ranitidine? Is there any role for them in the ED for anaphylaxis? Uh, I want to poll the
1: audience, Anton, just to kind of engage. Who here routinely gives an H2 blocker to all your anaphylactic patients? So either we got a lazy bunch or we're looking at maybe 10% or so. I mean, I I think what you have to realize is there's probably less evidence for H2 blockade than H1 blockade. What we do know, there was a study by Lynn in annals about 15 years ago or so, that the combination of H1 plus 2 is probably better than H1 alone. What does that mean? Uh, Maybe they feel better quicker. Um, With H2 blockade, you probably get the added benefit of some GI relief. So if someone has a lot of gastric anaphylactic symptoms, H2 blockade's helpful. And the other thing is if it's a bradykinin-mediated effect. So if you have angioedema, which tends to be a little bit different, and I don't want to go there, I think that H2 blockade has a a more important role than your garden run in the mill anaphylaxis.
0: Okay, so H2 blockers like ranitidine, we're talking patients with GI symptoms may help them symptomatically, and patients who are angioedema, which is kind of a whole other kettle of fish. And what about steroids? Who needs steroids in the ED for anaphylaxis? I mean, my understanding is that there's very little evidence for steroids and anaphylaxis affecting outcomes, just like in diphenhydramine. Before we get into Dr. Carr's take on steroids, let's again pull the audience here at the cases course. So... Who here in the audience routinely gives steroids for anaphylaxis? So we've got about 90% of the crowd here does give steroids routinely. All right. So, Dave, give us the lowdown. What's the lowdown on steroids for anaphylaxis?
1: Well, they certainly work for things like playing baseball while building muscles not getting into the Baseball Hall of Fame. But with regards to anaphylaxis, um, again, this is dogmatic practice. There's not good evidence to support or refute their use, but they're well established in the treatment. The thing that you have to realize, much like when you do with the H1 or H2 blockade, that these things work later downstream. And if they're gonna work, it's probably gonna take about four to six hours to work. So there is absolutely no rush. If you're limited for IVs or mouths, this isn't how you fill up those orifices. You really don't necessarily need to give steroids immediately. Do I give steroids? I do, but it's certainly not the first thing that I'm reaching for in my bag.
0: All right. What about
1: uh, dexamethasone? Yeah, I like dex. And the reason why I like dex is because of its long half-life. And what I want to do is keep things simple for people where they leave. And if I'm going to give them a steroid for anaphylaxis, I'm probably going to give them dex because it lasts. the half-life's about 53 hours, so it probably lasts two to three days. Remember, all the use of steroids and anaphylaxis has been extrapolated from the asthma literature. It really is not an independent thing. So we're just extrapolating, you know, for asthma we give steroids, we'll maybe give it for anaphylaxis too. So I usually just give them a single-dose dex, so then I don't have to send my patients home with a prescription.
0: Okay, so let me just clarify this. You're going to give steroids to the patients who fulfill the criteria for anaphylaxis, so those patients that are getting epi? Clearly. If I'm not, if I don't think you have anaphylaxis,
1: You don't need steroids.
0: Okay, so the patient with urticaria, really itchy, it's driving them crazy, generally no
1: steroids? No, yeah, I I think that's exactly right. Now, if someone has tremendous facial edema and it's very uncomfortable, I might give them steroids. In the same way, I might give them steroids when they have pharyngitis with a kind of swollen, beefy uvula. Um, That's kind of how I'll use it. But really, it's an anaphylactic drug as far as I'm concerned for the most part.
0: Okay, so if you're not giving epinephrine, then there's really no huge role for giving steroids.
1: I think that's the right right way to put it.
0: All right. Let's hear someone else tell us that.
1: If
2: you don't give epinephrine, then don't
0: give steroids. Did you get Schwarzenegger to say that? That was actually my daughter, but I had lots of fun making her voice all funny. All right. Let's continue with the case. It turns out you decide not to give epi to this patient who has an itchy rash and a tickle in her throat. You go see another patient, and about 15 minutes later, the nurse calls you stat to room 11. And as you turn the corner into the room, you see this. So you're surprised to see that your patient now has a massively swollen tongue. She's striderous. And as you stain your underwear, you think to yourself, why didn't I give that epinephrine?
1: So let me just say, I, I think the key is respect people who give themselves the shots. What's amazing is how many people carry EpiPens and don't actually use it. When we look at on deaths in this province in the last 25 years, there's been about 80 deaths. 18 of those people were not prescribed epinephrine, but nine of those people had it and didn't use it. I think the key is when you have people come and emerge and give themselves Epi, they're the real deal. They really are. And we know with epinephrine and we know with anaphylaxis, if it's going to kill, it's going to kill quickly. So besides this patient now quite obviously needing epi,
0: we're now into a hair-raising, sphincter-tightening airway emergency. Now, we're fortunate to have in our audience today one of Canada's airway masters, George Kovacs. So George, how are you going to manage this airway?
2: So we've already covered off the changing of the, the underwear, and, and the next thing I'd do is, is sign over to uh, one of my colleagues and say, there's a, there's a guy I've given some uh, X, Y, and Z to, uh, they're in bed, whatever, but i got, I got to go home. Uh, yeah, so, so this is something everybody should be uh, fearful of. And if you look at it, again, from an anatomical point of view, do you predict this person is going to be a problem from a laryngoscopy point of view? Who's going to be able to scope this guy orally? Are you going to be able to bag mass, ventilate this patient? No. Are you gonna be able to get a supraglottic airway in? No. Often, they've got significant tongue swelling, but their, their glottis or their periglottic region is okay. If you hear stridor, you're in trouble. Observing a patient with stridor is equivalent to, you know, watching somebody about to die. Um, so if, if they've got stridor, this is an impending death. So if they've got stridor, then you've gotta be prepping the neck and ready to go there. Some people will say, listen, if I can get beyond that tongue some way, you might be golden. But uh, again, getting beyond that tongue with direct approach, that's not going to happen. And definitely doing it without topicalizing the patient, is not going to happen. So really, you're left with two approaches. One through the nose, and what can you do through the nose? So you can do awake fiber optics. Again, that's something, a skill that a lot of people don't have. The way to topicalize this person, whether you're going to go orally or through the nose, is doing it through the nose. So again, using spray through the nose, getting them to breathe in, or again, using an atomizer, ideally, through the nose. You'll get them topically so that you'll be able to do it. How about a blind nasal? Um, Who here has done a blind nasal? in the past, we can tell usually by age. Because back in the old days, right, there was two ways to intubate, right? So we would intubate the patient uh, anybody who came in with respiratory effort, we did through the nose. And then if they were dead, we did it through the mouth. But again, it's a, it's a skill that's fraught with failure. Um, so I would go, my approach would be putting in a, a nasal airway, topicalizing, and then, and then putting in an intracheal tube down to about 16 and then dropping a, a flexible through the, through the nose, recognizing that you're going to do what's called a double setup here. Whenever you're going to approach this person, you got to be prepared to go to the neck.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Kovacs. All right, so let's move on. So Dr. Carr, let's say they don't look this bad with a huge swollen tongue filling their mouth. Let's talk about the vast majority of patients that you're observing in the ED. How long do we need to keep patients with allergic reactions with or without anaphylaxis in the, in, in the ED? Is there a magic number like six hours for all patients do we need to worry about the biphasic reactions that we, that we dread, that the patient comes back with a worse reaction? I mean, how good are the steroids at preventing this biphasic reaction? Which patients do we want to observe for longer in, in the ED? Are there patients with high risk factors? What's your take on observation time for patients with allergic reaction and or anaphylaxis?
1: The old days I would have said what the textbook said, which is you keep them for four to six hours, right? Isn't that what we always say? Uh, The reality is, one, there's a feasibility of four to six hours in most of the places where we work. But even if you think about safety, at the end of the day, I think the most important thing is that when the patient is completely asymptomatic, they are likely safe and well to go home. Now, I don't know what that magic number is, but typically that takes several hours. Now, what you have to realize is that there was two important studies that came out in 2014 and fifteen by our Canadian colleagues in Vancouver, Grunow and Grafstein, and it was published in Annals. And the first study, it looked at, I think, about 2,500 patients. And they kind of said, well, they looked at this business of biphasic reactions. And what they found is that they had a clinical incidence of significant biphasic reactions 0.18% of the time. And what we know about biphasic reactions is that they can really occur at any time. The mean time is probably about seven or eight hours, but they can occur up to a week later. So with this first study... I usually
0: keep my patients in the emergency department
1: for a week. That's why... Because they might
0: have that biphasic reaction. That's That's why
1: people love following you on shift. There you go. (laughs) Um... But I think the key is, so that first paper really addressed the fact that, you know what, clinically relevant biphasic reactions are probably a bit lower than we thought of. Now, typically, we've heard rates anywhere from 5 to 20% before then, so this was a little low. But one of the things when you looked at this study is that when they looked at who they included, they didn't include necessarily the sickest people. And they came out with a study this year, and they kind of wanted to poo-poo steroids. And they wanted to really kind of say that there was no role for steroids. And they looked at, you know, again, that same cohort of patients, and they saw who got steroids and who didn't. And when they looked at the groups, they said, well, the people who got steroids, 6 You know, 6% of them were more likely to come back versus about 7% who didn't get steroids. And it was not statistically significant. So their conclusion is you don't need steroids to prevent biphasic reactions. Now, there was one really fundamental problem with this study, which was in the study, only 54% of the people got epinephrine. So these aren't even anaphylactic people. So yes, I agree. If you don't have anaphylaxis, you don't have to worry about bounce backs and you don't have to worry about steroids. But I don't think we can entirely dismiss not giving steroids. What we know is that probably the most important thing for preventing bounce back is recognizing anaphylaxis early and treating it early. Steroids probably aren't the panacea. What you need to do is early administration of epinephrine that will prevent biphasic reactions. And when they feel better, it's time to go home.
0: All right, so the take-home there, Dr. Carr, is that giving epinephrine early may prevent that second worst reaction, the biphasic reaction. And anyone who fulfills the criteria, again, for anaphylaxis should be getting epi. The steroids haven't really been proven to prevent that biphasic reaction.
1: Yeah, I I don't think we're there yet. I don't think you can eliminate it based on this one study. I think you have to look at anaphylaxis patient and say, who do I need to observe based on, you know, what their clinical course is? Like if I had someone who was just intubated a week ago and had anaphylaxis and was in an ICU, obviously I'm going to be a bit ginger about kicking them out the door. Now, if I have someone who's required repeated doses of epi or an epi drip or on certain medications, those aren't people I'm quick to get off with, but the people who don't have a concerning story respond quickly, feel perfect, probably safely go home in several hours. Okay. So that's
0: the steroids and the epinephrine in terms of how long we're going to watch them and the biphasic reaction. I imagine that some patients who have a high risk for severe anaphylaxis, you're going to want to keep for longer rather than shorter in the emergency department. What are some of those risk factors for severe anaphylaxis?
1: Yeah, I think severe are the ones who come in really early on after symptoms. So the sooner you have symptoms after your allergen exposure, the more serious your cases. But the other thing is what medications you're on. And we've always been taught to worry about beta blockers, but the presence of any antihypertensives use So if you're on a a beta blocker, an ACE, any antihypertensive, it means that your odds ratio for needing to be admitted are much higher because they really interfere with some of the medications we give. So really patients on antihypertensive, patients who have early symptoms, and asthma is a really big one. I think, you know, there's often this overlap of, is this person anaphylactic, is this person asthmatic, but if you're an an, atopic, asthmatic, these kids do worse.
0: All right, so let's review there a little bit. The risk factors for severe anaphylaxis for consideration of longer observation times in the emergency department are... Number one. Patients on antihypertensives. Number two early symptom onset, and late treatment initiation. Number three. Asthmatics. Number four. History of severe reactions. All right. So my understanding is that a not uncommon cause of death in anaphylaxis is the patient not knowing how to administer the epinephrine autoinjector properly and not carrying it on them at the time of their anaphylactic reaction. So with this in mind, Dave, what discharge instructions do you suggest for our listeners, for patients who you're discharging after an anaphylactic reaction?
1: Yeah, probably the most important thing you can do is actually spend some time. And uh, that's something we're not maybe that great at. I think what you need to do is spend some time educating, especially if this is a first-time presenter. The first drug that you need to make sure you send them home with is an epinephrine auto injector, and at least a script for two. And the reason I say two is... Because sometimes that point three or point one, depending if it's a junior or regular, isn't enough and you need to have it. And you gotta need to you need to tell them what signs to look for when to give it. And those indications are the same ones that you use to give it. You gotta reassure them that this is safe to give and tell them how to give it, whether you use blue to the sky, orange to the thigh. You know, often I'll tell them to take an antihistamine for the next couple days. I often will tell them to take a non-sedating one during the daytime. And I often don't give a steroid because usually I've treated mine with dex in the eMERGE. So I don't give steroids to go. And then lastly, I tell them to follow up with an allergist, especially if it's a sting or bite anaphylaxis because venom immunotherapy is extremely helpful at preventing recurrences, but definitely an allergist referral as about 30% of the time. We don't have a clue what's going on.
0: Okay. So you got to talk to your patients about how to give their auto injector and you got to keep it simple in terms of the prescription that you give them. I mean, I used to give reactine in the morning and Benadryl at night, and then five day course of prednisone, uh, and then two epinephrine auto injectors, and take this at this time and that. Time. And it's confusing for the patient. We want to keep it simple, and we want to make sure that they understand the indications for epinephrine. So you've given your dex in the emergency department, maybe, so you don't need to give them a script for steroids because it has a long half life. You give them two auto injectors. You know, some people might carry one in their purse and have one at home or carry two of them in case they need two uh, injections. I actually show them in the emergency department how to give it, where to give it, and I I tell them this great new pearl that Dave taught me, blue to the sky, orange to the thigh. All right, so now that we've got a good idea of when and how to give epi, the evidence or lack thereof for second-line agents Preventing biphasic reactions and the importance of proper discharge instructions were ready for case number two. A 63-year-old man gets rushed into your recess room by EMS. He was well until about 30 minutes before arrival when he complained to his wife of feeling weak and dizzy. His wife noticed that he looked really unwell and called 911 immediately. EMS found him with a GCS of 13 and a blood pressure of 72 on palp. He's otherwise healthy except for a history of hypertension. There was no history of chest pain, no shortness of breath, no palpitations, no headache, no back pain or fever, no vomiting, diarrhea, no molina, nothing else that you would think that would cause his hypotension. Not, nothing else worrisome. He saw his family doctor the day prior complaining of urinary frequency and was started on SEPTRA, sulfa trimethoprim. He took it as prescribed about one hour ago. EMS started a bolus of normal saline in a peripheral IV, and in the ED, his BP remains about 70 on PALP. A second peripheral line is started. More normal saline under pressure bags is infused. A quick cardiac resp and belly exam are unremarkable, and an ECG and POCUS don't show any striking abnormalities except that the LV looks hyperdynamic and the IVC looks collapsed. So as this podcast is on anaphylaxis, although this patient could be suffering from sepsis, you guessed it right, this hypotensive patient without an obvious source is suffering from anaphylactic shock. So this begs the question, Dr. Carr, can you have isolated hypotension as you're only finding in anaphylaxis?
1: Absolutely, and this is what I talked about earlier with the definition, is the the master clinician picks this case up that, you know, sometimes you will get a story and they won't have the rash. And sometimes these isolated hypotensions will never get other phenomenon. But, you know, I've seen cases where they come in and they say, this is my anaphylaxis. This is it. I'm going to get the rash soon. And you're like, oh, perfect. Thanks. And then, you know, you know what to do, but you have to remember that 20% of people don't have a rash. So you can't hang your hat on dermatological findings for anaphylaxis. I mean, you got to get on board and start treating. All right, so this guy gets
0: 0.5 milligrams of 1 in 1,000 epi IM in the anterolateral thigh, and his pressure is still 70 on palp. And so five minutes later, he gets a second dose, and his pressure is still 70 on palp. He ain't getting better. So let's go back to our take-home point for epinephrine, timing, location, and dose. How would you give epi in this scenario of our 63-year-old man in shock with no other hard findings of anaphylaxis, who's had two intramuscular doses of epi that haven't done diddly squat for his pressure.
1: Yeah, I mean, the fortunate thing is this is not often the scenario that we see with anaphylaxis, but this is a time to treat shock appropriately. And here it is with parenteral epinephrine. Now let's kind of, like who in the last year has used IV epi on an anaphylactic patient? Yeah, not a lot. So I've used it once in the last year. And I think the key is that we all get scared about how to use it. And I think we need to keep things really simple on how to mix this up. And this is a push dose presser and a drip that you need to know how to use. The easiest way to do this, and I'm a simple guy, so I keep things very simple, is to take one milligram of Epi off your crash cart. To take that one milligram and put it in one liter of normal saline. And then what you have, you have one cc per minute drip. And what you can do with that, because each mil is one mic, is you have, for, you take a 10 cc syringe, which is 10 mics. And for someone like this, I'm going to give him or her five to 10 mic boluses. I'll give a push dose of five, a push dose of 10, maybe another couple push doses. And while I'm doing that, I'm going to take that one milligram in one liter and run it at, you know, start, let's say, at five mils per minute or something, which is five mics per minute, and quickly titrate up to 20 mics.
0: Okay, yeah, I find this sometimes get very confusing between the 1 in 1,000 and 1 in 10,000. And thankfully, I found out on Twitter recently, uh, thanks to my friend uh, Salim Rizei from uh, Rebel EM, that starting in May 2016, the current 1 in 1,000 and 1 And 10,000 concentration of epinephrine will be replaced completely with one milligram per mil and 0.1 milligram per mil, respectively, in hopes
1: of minimizing dosing error. Yeah, I wanted to comment on that. Like, I feel like we're this homeopathic compound pharmacy. Like, who the heck dose is a drug like that. It is the most confusing thing. Like we work in some ancient apothecary and I think we need to scrap this thing. And it's it's amazing that's taken so long. One milligram of epi equals a milligram of epi. Cut out this one in a thousand, one in 10,000 junk. I'm looking forward to it.
0: All right, so let's say you've given your push dose epi like Dr. Carr has just described and you've maxed out on 20 cc's per minute on your infusion of epi and the patient is still
1: hypotensive. Yeah, so you've given this guy 20 mics of push-dose epi, let's say. You've got him on a drip. What you have to realize is that about 10% of patients with severe anaphylaxis are epinephrine-resistant. Okay. And the reason they're epinephrine resistance is up to 35, 40% of their blood volume goes interstitial. These people have profound vasodilatory shock. The sickest person that I saw was actually this year. He came in. I gave him 20 mics push dose epi. I had him max out at 20 mics of epi per hour, per minute. I gave him 500 mics of push dose fennel. I had him on a LevoFed drip. And it wasn't until he got his eighth liter. Of normal saline, that I could actually get his pressure above 80, 90. It was kind of bottom in the 60s. So really need to give fluids, get your nurses there, get lots of IV access and push the fluids. Don't underestimate the vasodilatory shock that they have.
0: Okay. So we've maxed out on our epi. We're giving liter after liter after liter of fluids, two lines, pressure bags, full open. Is there any role for uh, a second presser?
1: Yeah, you're going to want something with squeeze, whether you use Levofed, which is the drug of choice and kind of every kind of shock. One of the things that has gotten some play in the literature is using vasopressin. It's kind of fallen out of ACLS, so we might not have it as available as we used to have it. But I think the key is that if you ask the anesthetists what they use interoperatively for anaphylactic shock, they like vasopressin because it seems to work well in the acidotic milieu in a colamine depleted state. So vasopressin is a choice, but you got to use what you're comfortable with. I think using LevoFed because that's what you have and that's what your nurses know where it is and how to draw it up is a reasonable choice. Something with squeeze.
0: Okay. So in this very rare epinephrine resistant anaphylactic shock, remember fluids, 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 and you can always reach for a second vasopressor like vasopressin. All right. So we know that anaphylaxis can certainly present just with isolated hypotension. It can present with hypotension plus vomiting. It can present with hypotension plus wheezing without a rash. And not recognizing this in a timely manner can lead to misdiagnosis and death. If you like to think of these things in sort of a metacognition sort of way, I like to use a cognitive forcing strategy every time I see a septic patient. So every time I see a septic patient, which we see lots of, I just force myself to consider, could this be anaphylaxis? Because isolated hypotension anaphylaxis is a very difficult diagnosis to make. So this was just a few weeks ago. I had this 43-year-old come in and he had this allergic reaction to cloxicillin. He complained of nausea, he vomited once, and he had a bit of shortness of breath along with his urticarial rash. I gave him IM-EPI, 0.5 milligrams, and he started complaining of chest pain. His ECG, to my surprise, showed a huge anterior STEMI. Now, I knew then what I know now, that epinephrine in the correct dose for anaphylaxis generally does not cause MIs. I double-checked the dose, and it was definitely correct. So why, then, was this guy having an MI in front of my eyes? I mean, what happened here? You know, did I cause an MI with my epi? Did the guy have underlying coronary disease that I should have picked up? So, Dr. Carr, before you give away the diagnosis... First, I think we need to clarify are there any real contraindications to epinephrine in the setting of severe anaphylaxis?
1: Plain, no. No. I mean, we've all been afraid and made to feel chicken about giving epinephrine to older people, people with a history of MIs. I mean, they're really pregnant people. If you have severe anaphylaxis, you need to treat with epinephrine. There was a study that looked at first responders, and it said that 35% felt they should not give epinephrine because there was a contraindication. There is not a contraindication.
0: Okay, so this is another one of those causes of death is the reluctance to give epinephrine in a patient who might have coronary artery disease or something like that. Correct. Okay. So epi is your friend. All right. So Dave, then what the hell's going on here? Like what's the diagnosis? This young guy, he's got a huge anterior STEMI and he's anaphylactic. So
1: what's that? I have been waiting for this for so bloody long. I can't believe you saw it. This guy has Kunis syndrome. Kounis
2: syndrome. Would you Would you jump? Would you jump about? What you,
1: about? What you, about? What you about? <laughs> He's got Kunis syndrome. And Kunis syndrome is cardiac anaphylaxis essentially. And I'll make it quick. There are three types of subtypes of Kunis syndrome. The first type is you got a young guy like you Anton and just like this patient, and he gets a dose, he gets an anaphylactic reaction, you give him the epinephrine, and all of a sudden, he has a STEMI. Now, your first reaction is, what have I done? You haven't done anything wrong. What's happened is this guy has had a massive, you know, histamine mass cell release, and that happens systemically into his coronary arteries. Well, wow, and-
0: so you actually get an antihistamine release in the coronaries that then causes...
1: The spasm that causes the MI. Correct. And if you look at a subset of people who have mink, mink is a fancy term for MI with normal coronaries. This is kind of your young person who has an MI and the cath is clean and they basically had an anaphylactic trigger that caused it. That can be one of the causes. So mink and, and kunis type 1 is something you don't see. Uh, Some I haven't seen, but a really cool thing. Kunis type two is a another possibility, but it works a little differently. Is you have a vulnerable host, so you have a sixty year old hypertensive diabetic smoker, obese vasculopath who has an allergic reaction. Their body develops a systemic reaction, and a vulnerable piece of plaque ruptures, and as a result, they have a STEMI. From the, if you look at if you cross section their coronaries on autopsy, you'll see tons of mast cells, eos, and all that kind of Allergic junk. So that group is a vulnerable host, plaque ruptures because of waves of inflammatory debris. And then type 3 is the type you all know, which is someone gets a stent and they come back the next day or later because that stent uh, stenose. And that is because that drug-eluting stent had a reaction inside the coronary and they're clued off and that's a type three so kunis exists and i mean it is not the epinephrine that's dangerous you need to treat anaphylaxis people used to thought you know if someone's on a beta blocker and we give them epinephrine this is really dangerous because then they can have unopposed alpha and they can have a heart attack and stuff it's not the beta blocker that's causing the heart attack It is the massive anaphylactic reaction that we see in cardiac anaphylaxis in patients with Kunis syndrome. So
0: here we are with a guy with a STEMI and he's got anaphylaxis. So are you telling me that you're going to give this guy more epinephrine with that huge anterior STEMI?
1: If he needs it. You know, and if you, if you talk to allergists, what they'll say is to give them a low dose. I mean, this isn't the guy you give 0.5, but you might give him 0.15. But that being said, if his anaphylactic symptoms have resolved, then treat his STEMI um, the way you normally would. But if he's having airway symptoms and he's having lots of hypotension and wheezing and vomiting, you're going to be gentle, but you're going to have to keep giving him his epi.
0: All right. So that's Kuna syndrome for you. So before we w- wrap up with all the key take-home pearls, we're going to open the floor to some questions. So any audience questions about anaphylaxis in general that we haven't answered in the podcast so far? In the class of teaching those who are on beta blockers who are refractory, to is there any evidence around this? Or is this just a distraction from giving more fluids and epi?
1: It's a really good point. So that is something that we often hear about. We often don't have the chance to treat it. But I think no doubt, like if someone's on uh, an antihypertensive and is a beta blocker and they're resistant, you could consider glucagon. Evidence with anaphylaxis is not great with the exception of epinephrine. So everything you use as an adjunct, you're not going to have great evidence. But I certainly think it's worth a try because it bypasses the way that epinephrine works. What tends to limit glucagon's use, whether you're using it for foreign bodies or whatever you're using, is it's very ametogenic. People puke like mad. So I think that in people who are on beta blockers, some people will say to use a lower dose epi or to consider glucagon if they're refractory. And I would definitely start them at, you know, 2 to 5 milligram IV push and then some bolus provided that none of the other things you work are working. And I think you raise a good point is I would still try the other measures first because they're safer and more tolerable. I prefer to give a normal saline infusion than a glucagon infusion.
0: Awesome. All right, so hey, guys. Uh, My name is Taryn Lloyd. I'm one of the uh, R1s in the emergency program. Um, And I'm just wondering about something, and I'm sure there's probably people in the audience wondering as well because I know it came up earlier today in the SIM session, but I'm just wondering, um, say I've drawn up my uh, 1 in 1,000 dose of epinephrine um, and I actually give it IV instead of giving it IM. I'm just wondering if you guys can comment on what I should do then and sort of what we would do about that mistake.
1: I think that you are really stuck in that point. Um, in terms of medical management, you have to know the half-life of IV epi is not very long. With an infusion, it might be, you know, five, 10 minutes. And and with a big dose, who knows? You're not probably going to even exceed an hour or you're going to be below that. I think for most cases, you're probably going to treat supportively, whether it's with fluids, you know, if they're having other symptoms, uh, hypertension or something, you could consider vasodilating them with a bit of, uh, Uh, nitroglycerin Um, people will talk about using beta blockers or alpha blockers as well but i haven't come across this scenario but taryn my my approach would be watchful waiting obviously if people are having strokes and mis you've got problems but for the most part it would be fluids maybe an anxiolytic benzodiazepine and possibly some nitroglycerin if they're really hypertensive and you're worried about them I probably wouldn't use a beta blocker because I think in the setting of anaphylaxis, it wouldn't be where I'd go. Could you use an alpha blocker? Possibly. But the end of the day is, I think you just got to watch them and then afterwards disclose.
0: All right, Dave, let's get to the wrap-up. Can you tell us in as few words as possible what the take-home points are?
1: Epinephrine, how, when, where, and always.
0: (laughs) All right. Great. So again, the number one cause of death in anaphylaxis is failure to give epinephrine in a timely manner, in the correct location, and in the correct dose. There are no contraindications to epinephrine when it comes to severe anaphylaxis. Consider anaphylaxis in every patient who presents in shock, because anaphylaxis can present with isolated hypotension, and those are the key take-home points. With that... I thank you, Dr. Carr and the EM Cases course audience. Thank you for your participation and to SREMI for making this all happen. So until next time, don't wimp out on giving epinephrine for anaphylaxis.